Is this not another good Sunday that we have this today? Yeah, right? Yeah, this is great. We have an open house. There are good things happening. I mean, this is, I'm very excited lately. I don't know about you guys. I'm like, I'm always a little bit shaky because I'm so excited. But hey, I know some of you might be new. Some of you probably already know who we are as a church. And we are the church. Let me go ahead and remind you. We are the church for those who have given up on church. Like that means that all, everything we do has that mentality that we want to be a place for those who are like, hey, I, I'm tired of church or I don't see the point of church. We want to be that safe place for people to be able to come, to belong, to be loved, to be cared for, and more importantly, to know the name of Jesus. That is all that we are about. And one of the things in my experience that I've seen people give up on church is that they feel underappreciated. Like they work all the time in church and they're always serving, they're always doing these great things and then no one seems to notice, right? Like everyone just seems to just shrug it off or just assume this is what always happens. So we're passionate about changing that narrative, which is why before we get into the text, before we start to hear the word of God, we always stop to, to look around at one another and give appreciation for what each other are doing to make this possible. And this morning, I want to give a round of applause to our stewardship team, especially in this season as we are planning on hopefully moving to a building. They're doing a lot of work, not only with our budget, but also to help make sure that we're making the wise decisions that we are able to do this, and that deserves our appreciation. So let's give them a round of applause, why don't we? Yeah. Now, as you guys are aware, this summer we have a theme talking about the storms of life. And what we mean by that are those tragic, unexpected, they come out of way of left field, they come out of nowhere, and they completely change our life. Like, there are those tragic moments that you're like, hey, I had this plan for my life, it was going in this direction, and all of a sudden this, this car crash, this diagnosis, this, this loss of my job kind of robs me of the plan I had in place. And now I'm dealing with this crisis, this tragedy, and this storm of life. And we've been talking about that these things come for all of us. And so it's best for us to be prepared. That's why we've been in this short little mini-series talking about how we can be prepared in advance for these moments in life. And we're not talking about having a little uh, nest egg or savings account, things like that. That's all great things. But we've been talking about the deeper things of the mind and the heart of how we prepare for these tragedies in life. And remember, we started off by talking about how all of us together, those who say that they are a follower of Jesus, are part of the same family, meaning we are not alone. Because when tragedy and storms and crisis happen, so oftentimes they make us feel isolated. They make us feel like it's us against the world. But in the church, there's a different mentality. In the church, it's we are together. And God has brought us together so we can lean upon one another, so we can trust one another, so we can help one another, encourage one another to get through these storms in life. The second thing that we need to, in order to prepare is what we talked about last week. And it's that if we want to prepare that way, we're on the best footing when the storms of life come, then we must have the attitude of Christ. Meaning we must live, whether it's rain or shine, with the same idea that we are going to put others before ourselves. That we are going to be selfless instead of selfish. Because the world's doing a fine job of being selfish. But our job is to show the world who our God was. And our God abandoned all selfishness to be selfless in serving us and being there for us, to love us and ultimately to die for us. 
And we show the world who our God is when we look like Christ, when we try to be selfless and put others before ourselves. So those are the first two principles. And the third one is probably the most simple and most powerful and important thing to remember when a storm happens, okay? And so rather than wait until the end of the message to give you, like, here's the main point, I'm going to give it to you right in the beginning. And you're going to think, wow, is this all that Mason has for us? Is this as profound as Mason can really get? Trust me, it's that simple. Okay, here it is. When God plans it, nothing can change it. Simple, right? Okay, here's what's going to happen this morning. Several times this morning, we're going to see this on the screen, and every time this is on the screen, I want all of you to say it out loud. So kids, I know this is the last Sunday you're having to suffer hearing me preach on Sunday morning before you go back and rock out and bluff kids and all that. So let's make this a good one. Every time you see this on the screen, I want you to feel free to shout it out as loud as you can, okay? So let's go and practice this. Okay, can everyone read this? All right, ready? Right. Okay, you guys are going to do great this morning. I'm loving this. All right? And see, this is simple, right? And to some degree, we all know this is true, but when a storm happens in life, when a tragedy sets us back, when we're hurt, this is so often forgotten. Where we think, what is the plan? What's the big point? And we think that maybe God has abandoned us or that God doesn't care about us. Or we think maybe God is just powerless, But the truth is that God is still in control, that this is a big theme through all all of Scripture. And and I'm betting just the fact that you're in here, to some degree, you know that this is true. Whether the storm is going on or not, you know to some degree, yes, God is in control, God has got this, and yet you still feel like in this middle time right here, this thing's a mess and things in a lot of pain. But then we go back to these verses to try to remind ourselves, the scripture to remind ourselves that God is in control, that God has a good plan. And like I know one of them that you probably have on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a calendar or poster, probably your work or something like that, is that famous passage from Jeremiah, right? So Jeremiah 29, 11, you probably know this. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Like, we know this. We, we encourage ourselves with this all the time, thinking, okay, this, everything's a mess right now, but you know what? God has a plan, and God is, it says this plan is for our welfare and, and for our good and for his glory and things like that, and it's for our future and for our hope and things like that. But right now, it's a little bit sticky. It's a little bit messy. It's a little uncomfortable. And it's easy in these moments to think, like I said, that God has abandoned us. Or that God doesn't care about us. Or that God doesn't love us. Or maybe that God is just weak and powerless. This is a very common thought out there. It might even be the opinion of some in this room. But this morning I want to propose to you a different argument. That according to God's word and what God says himself, that he does love us, he does care for us, and he is in fact powerful and he has a plan that he is continuing to move forward. And that plan begins on the very first page of Scripture. When you open up your Bible and go to page 1, there's this little verse called Genesis 1-1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God just spoke, and out came everything that we see. 
Now, regardless if you're a, a six-day literal creationist or you're a theo-evolutionist on how you read the Bible and the creation story, the point is that God created everything and that he was intentional about how he created things. So, like, he takes the world and it's, like, covered in water and he pulls back the water like, like bed sheets and he stretches out the heavens like a tent and, and he pulls up mountains from the, the oceans and then he carves out the valleys and he creates boundaries with water and all of it is good. And then he fills the world with vegetation. Everything goes green and starts blossoming these beautiful flowers and things like that. And then he fills it full of animals and and it's all good. And then God creates his crowning achievement. Humanity. The ones that the scripture says that we are the image bearers of God. We are the ones who therefore are made to reflect God that we're vastly different than anything else in this world. And all of it was good. And for a while, everything is perfect and it's in harmony and it's the way things should be. But we know how things go. Eventually, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, reject God like we all do. They chose themselves over the Creator, and we all do this all the time. We always think our desires, our well being, our wishes come first. We want to be in charge. So rather than listen to a creator who says, this is the thing that I've made, and here's these things that I've given you so that you can live a good life, we're like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do it myself. I don't need you. I've got this figured out, this whole life thing. I know I created myself and things like that, so surely I'm God. Like, that's how humanity thinks. And you want proof of this? Look back to every single relationship problem you've ever had in your life. Is it not the proof that these things happen because someone wants to be in charge? Someone wants their desires over someone else? Someone wants uh, things to be controlled in a certain way? Someone wants their little kingdom to end up the way they want it? So therefore, when you have two people who are like that, there's conflict. The proof that we are like this is seen all around us. In almost every conversation we seem to have, this is our terrible habit. That we look at others around us and we still think, my desires and the way I want things come first. And this is a mess, right? Like you can't help but look at this and you're like, this whole plan that God had for our future, for our hope, for our good and all, it seems like it's all fallen to disaster right off the bat. Like on Genesis chapter 2, by then everything's just hit the fan, right? Like this is all a disaster, this is all a mess, and you're just thinking, this, how could this possibly be redeemed? But what is it that we remember? Right. So when things turn to a mess, God rolls up his sleeves and gets to work. And God begins the great journey of trying to win back humanity. And it's gruesome in the beginning. You read Genesis chapter 3 to 11, and it's not a pretty sight of humanity. Like things are just slowly going down the toilet. And then eventually God intervenes about 4,000 years ago with a man named Abraham. 
And he goes up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to do something with you that is going to completely change the world. Because Abraham is the turning point in the entire Bible. Abraham's the point where God says, I'm going to begin something that's going to fix the entire world. And it's going to begin with you. And we're going to make a little nation out of you. I know you don't have any kids. You're an old dude. But we're going to make a nation out of you. This nation's going to own a land. And they're going to be used by God to fix the world. As God's going to bring in his big plan. And this seems great, even for Abraham, who's probably like a really old dude who doesn't have any kids. He's probably really excited, but there's a problem. It's that Abraham was a hot mess. You read the stories, and he looked multiple times. He kept going around saying, you know what? My wife is smoking, and I'm an old fart, and people are probably going to kill me to have her. Like That happens on multiple occasions where that's how he thinks. So he goes around telling people that his wife is not his wife, but his sister. To the point where other people are like, oh, okay, well, let me go and I'm going to go marry your sister and go off. And it is just a blundering mess. And Abraham does this multiple times where he, he's afraid of the fact that he's married to a smoking hot wife and he's an ugly old fart, okay? That's how Abraham is. And you read this and you're like, is this really the man that God chooses? Is this really the person that God wants to build a nation out of? That God wants to save and fix the world through this guy and his family. I mean, this seems like a disaster. This seems like a mess. Everything, this whole plan that God has must be ruined as this keeps happening. But, but what is it that we remember? Right. See, every time that Abraham messed up, God always intervened. And God always saved the day. God always protected Abraham and Sarah. And eventually, after a time, he gives them a son named Isaac. Now, Isaac is just like his father. He marries way out of his league. Now, this, in my opinion, I think this is true of most men of God. We tend to marry out of our league. Can I get an amen? Right. There we go. Yeah. See, this is just true. For all of you who are like, I want to be a man of God one day, here you go. This is your award, okay? You're going to marry someone out of your league. Okay, so this is how Isaac goes, and he does the same thing as his father. If you read in the book of Genesis, he goes around, he says the same thing. He's like, I'm married to a smoking hot bride, and and I'm a little bit terrified, so we're going to tell everyone she's my sister, okay, so they don't kill me. Like, this is like the family tradition. You're like, "This, this family is a mess. Well, then the third generation comes along. And it's a guy named Jacob. See, Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob is one of those true troublemakers. He's, like, always getting called to the principal's office and things like that. Like, as a little kid, he would always been a liar, always conniving, always manipulating. He would have been the kid who was, like, light the teacher on fire and then deny he ever did it, okay? Like, that is Jacob to a T. And when he gets older and you read the story, he's kind of like a villain sometimes and how he treats others, and how he lies and manipulates. And you read this, and you're like, is this really the person that God wants to use? This family is all a mess. We should just start over, find a new family, find a nice, clean, cushioned, nicely groomed family. This family is a mess, especially Jacob. But what do we remember when it's all a disaster? Exactly. You see, when you read the story of Jacob, you almost get this sense where God is rubbing his hands together. He says, this, this guy, this is perfect. This is exactly who I want to use. This guy, he's a screw-up. Everything he touches, uh, you know, turns to ash. He's exactly the person I'm going to use. 
And you read the story, and he has a dramatic transformation from, from Jacob to a man known as Israel. As someone who is now following after God and trying to bring redemption from all his pasts and things like that. Because God has a plan, and he's going to use the screw-ups even of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to still move this plan forward. Because this plan, remember, is about our welfare. It's about our future. It's about our hope. It's about the good of all of us and more importantly, the glory of God. And see, this family is remarkable because out of them comes a nation. In fact, if you read with me, in Psalm chapter 105, verse 7, it says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. Remember the covenant, the unbreakable promise he made to Abraham of Abraham, I'm going to use your family to do something extraordinary. It says he remembers his covenant even when they screw up all the time. It says he remembered his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for inheritance. So Jacob, following with this promise that God has made, that he's going to build a nation, Jacob has 12 sons. Like 12 sons. That's a, that's a lot, okay? That's a lot of mouths to feed, especially when they turn to teenagers, right? Well, these 12 sons did not get along. In fact, there's one son named Joseph, and Joseph is the youngest, but he's the favorite, okay? The father, Jacob, loves him more. Remember, Jacob has some problems, okay? And he loves Joseph more. And Joseph, in the beginning of his story, is a brat. Let's just be honest about it. He's a brat. He goes around to his older brothers all the time, says, hey, guys, one day you're going to bow at my feet. Like, I, talk about sibling rivalry, okay? Like, that, that obviously makes a little bit of a hassle when you go up to your siblings and you're like, kiss my toe, you know, all right? Like, that's how Joseph acts in the beginning of his story, and his brothers are like, we're not dealing with this. So they take him, they throw him in a well, and they sell him as a slave. Now, I have a, a little sister, and we have some sibling rivalry from time to time when we were growing up, but it was never that bad, okay? Like, we never got to the point where, like, we're going to sell you to sleep. I, I don't know. I never Googled it. Maybe my sister did, um, but I certainly never looked into something like that. But this is the state, and you're sitting there thinking, what has happened to this family? They are selling each other now as slaves. Like, the problem is not the rest of the world. The problem seems to be in the family. They're constantly tearing one another apart. And it's easy to look at this and like, here's this big plan you have, God, but this family is a mess. It's a disaster. Everything must be ruined now, right? What is it that we remember? You guys are doing a great job. And this was exactly God's plan to use this moment to bring Joseph into Egypt because he had a plan to save a lot of people in a couple of decades, and he was going to use Joseph. But in that journey, he had to bring Joseph a little bit of humility. So Joseph ends up as a slave. And he's in a guy's house named Potiphar. And Potiphar is this rich official, and Joseph's serving him for a number of years. And he eventually becomes like the head slave. He's like the butler of the house. And things are going great. And then Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph. And things kind of go bad because she tries to make a move on Joseph. And Joseph flees. And so she goes around saying, Joseph took advantage of me. 
this is not good, right? Because Joseph now ends, in, ends up in prison. Like, talk about a literal storm in life. Like, Joseph is just trying to be good. He's trying to pay for how he treated his brothers. He's just trying to get by, and now he's in prison because uh, he didn't want to do something really bad, okay? So now he's in prison, and it'd be easy to think this is all a mess. Like, God, things are just getting worse. He went from a slave, and yes, he was, he was well-treated, but now he's in prison, and in an Old Testament prison, like, there's no bathrooms, there's no AC. So this is even worse than any modern-day prison, okay? And it is easy to look at this and be like, this is a mess. It's all a disaster. This plan surely has ended, God. Just start over. But what is it that we remember? Right, right. And so God used this moment as a bridge to get Joseph into Pharaoh's court. And if you read this story in the Genesis narrative, Joseph goes from being this like squatter in a prison to all of a sudden being the second most powerful man in the entire nation of Egypt. Okay, second only to Pharaoh. And in this time frame, God uses Joseph to prepare for a famine that was to come. He warns Joseph, saying, hey, guess what? Things are going to be really bad over all the land, so you need to start preparing for it now. And so Joseph prepares for it. And eventually when this famine comes, everyone's coming to Egypt because they need food and resources. And who comes along but the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery? who probably for 20 years thought their brother was dead, they have not communicated, and all of a sudden they come in and they find Joseph. And you think, Here's Joseph, his chance for revenge. But when Joseph looks at them, he says, you know what? You meant something for evil, but God meant it for good. Because God put Joseph through this long series of storms to put him in a position where he could save lives. And the story goes on from there. See, the family, they then move into the like, neighborhood next to Egypt, and they stay there for a while, and like generations pass, and this little family starts to reproduce like bunnies. And all of a sudden, they're like this bubbling little nation, and Egypt kind of gets afraid. So the Pharaoh makes an order of like, let's invade, let's enslave these people. And once again, here's where the story turns dark. Because everything seemed to be going well, and all of a sudden, God's people are now living as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. We're talking about like twice the lifespan of the United States. They are slaves in Egypt, constantly crying out. Talk about a time to think that God had abandoned you, that God didn't care about you. Things seem awful. It seems like this plan was going well, and here we are. We're in slavery right now. It seems like a disaster. It seems like this whole idea of God bringing hope and future for us, it seems like it's just crash and burned. But what is it that we remember? Exactly. Because God was using this moment to set the stage for the book of Exodus. So if you read the book of Exodus, it kind of starts off with God saying, I'm going to war. And he does. He brings these plagues. He goes to war against all these other Egyptian gods and stuff like that and shows that there's only one God, and it is our God, and his name was Yahweh. Oh, the great I am. And God does this, this big event to the Egyptians where one moment they're, they're imprisoning the Israelites, they're torturing them, they're using them as slaves, and the next moment they're like, 
Get out of here. Take all my possessions, anything you need. Just go far away. We do not want you in here anymore because your God's making a mess. Your God is just too dangerous. He cannot be controlled. And so the scripture actually says, this is almost comical in my opinion. Scripture actually says in Psalm 105, verse 37, it says, then he brought out Israel with silver and gold. Like they pillaged and robbed the people who were keeping them as captives. He says, they came out with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. And Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. See, God didn't just free his people. He let them walk out as kings and queens from when they were once slaves. And things are seeming to be great. They're, they're going around dancing and singing. They're rejoicing. And they get to the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden they're figuring out, okay, well, we took a wrong turn somewhere. So now we've got to figure out how to go around. And as they turn around, what comes over the hill? But the chariots of Pharaoh. People who are coming, they're having this mind of revenge, like, oh, we can't let these Israelites get away. Let's go out there. Let's slaughter every man, woman, and child. And the people start freaking out, all the Israelites. They're like this. Talk about a literal storm, right? They're here. They're, they're seeing their death approach, and they're thinking, this is the end of God's big plan, God's big story. But what is it that we remember when everything seems like a disaster? Exactly, because God used this moment once again to show his strength and his power. Because if you read both history and in the, the scriptures, which is also history, you see that God opens up the Red Sea and swallows them whole. And he takes his people and he, he guides them into the desert for 40 years. Now, I've been in that desert. I've walked its, its land. I have had its sand between my toes. And I can tell you, you would not survive without supplies or the hand of God to protect you. And for 40 years, God brings them into this wilderness to struggle but he is constantly providing for them. Like they wake up every morning and there is quail and bread for their entire day right there on the front porch. And look, there's a rock over there that's somehow gushing out water. Like I, I'm still struggling to picture in my mind what that would look like. And the scripture says that's what it is. As well as at night, there's this fire tornado. And at day, there's another literal tornado to tell them, hey, look, you're being guarded. You're being cared for. They have everything they need to survive in this time frame. But what do the people do? They kind of respond the same way Adam and Eve responded, where they had everything they could possibly need, and then they're sitting there thinking, that's nice, God, um, but we're, we're going to go our own little way now. Thank you for saving us. That was wonderful, um, but we can't control you. You're kind of scary, so we're going to come over here, and we're going to try to make something that we can't control that we're comfortable with. Like Scripture says in, in the, the Psalms, it says in Psalm 106, 20 through 21, it says, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Like I said, they sit there and look saying, God, that was great that you saved us, that you redeemed us, that you gave us an idea, you gave us all these blessings, um, but, but could you go away or maybe just look away because we want to do this over here. Um, life seems more fun when we're in charge. I know you have this, this plan, and you know you have these things that says, hey, if you do this, you're going to have a good life, but, but we want our life. We want the life the way we want it. And time after time after time, they do this. And it seems like now, once again, another disaster has shown up. Where Once again, the problem is not outside the people. It's within the people who just don't really care. But what happens when we start to lose faith? 
And when we think the, the whole plan is disaster and everything has hit the fan, what is it that we remember? You guys are doing a great job this morning. And so time after time after time, God continues to try to win back the heart of his people. And eventually it gets to the point where it's time for them to enter the land that was promised them. So you read the accounts of Joshua and Judges, and it's this conquest story, and it's a blundering mess. Okay, the people get it wrong more times than they get it right. Like, that's true for all of humanity, right? Like, we tend to get things wrong more than we get it right. That's how they were operating. It seems like, man, these people should not be cared for. They should not be loved. And they constantly are saying, God, don't worry. We got this. We're the superstars. Okay, and God constantly has to intervene and save them. Like, you read in the scriptures... And it says in Psalm 106, 43, it says many times he delivered them. When they constantly made mistakes, when they constantly thought, I've got this figured out, I can do things my way, God constantly has to deliver them from the consequences that come out of that thinking when they get themselves in trouble. It says, but they were still rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There's so much more that we can say an example of God constantly moving his plan forward, of constantly showing love and patience and care for beings who don't reciprocate it. But we would be remorse if we didn't bring up the example of Jesus. Because this is where the plan was always leading to. It was Jesus, where God takes on flesh, where God comes to make his dwelling among us, to create his dynasty, his kingdom. And things for a while seem great. People are being healed. People are finding hope. They're saying, yes, I'm one of those Jesus guys. And then eventually Jesus starts to reveal who he is in his big plan, and things go predictable. People reject him because that's who God is. He is the being who is always rejected by lesser beings. And it seems tragic. And you read the Gospels and you're like, does people not understand who this guy is? Will they not open their eyes and, and repent of how they're acting? But it just goes on and on. The story gets darker and darker and darker. And it seems hopeless. And then you see people just like us who take this Jesus, this Christ, and they crucify him. It's brutal. It's ugly. And if this is a moment at any time, this is the moment where it's easy to look and say, this plan has surely failed. This plan, God, to bring us hope, to bring us love, to bring us a future, surely has ended in this moment. But what is it that we remember when we start to feel that way? Because this was exactly the plan. To allow beings lesser than him to take him, strip him down, torture him, and then kill him. Because he loved us, he gave himself willingly for that. For our sins. Because he had the mindset to give us a future and a hope. That future and hope, let me be very clear, was not so you can go to heaven. That's a misinterpretation when we think Christianity and the whole church is, uh, uh, let me say this little prayer so I can go to heaven. That Jesus died for me so I can go to heaven. That's not what the story is. 
The story is here is God coming to fix the world. God coming to fix us. God coming to establish his kingdom and restore all things in a restored heaven and a restored earth that is blended together when his people are family, when his people are one of his own. That's why we see in the book of Ephesians, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, it says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, it says, in him, meaning in Jesus, meaning being in relationship with Jesus, having faith in him, being part of his family, Okay, being in him, we have redemption through his blood. Like that, that sounds pretty nice, right? Like we all want redemption for that terrible habit that we all have. It says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Not, hey, I'm just going to sprinkle a little bit of grace in your life. Or, hey, I'm just going to forgive what sins you have already confessed me. He's like, no, no, you're drowning in grace when you're in Jesus. Like, there's no point where you can out the grace of Jesus, that he has poured it all. He has lavished us in his grace so that we can have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses that every single one of us have made. That Christ has come and he has lavished grace on us so that in all wisdom and insight he might make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. I love this, that God has a purpose, right? It says this, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. There's that magic word, right? Like which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Meaning that Christ is the centerpiece. Christ is the focal point of all of human history, of this plan, of making us like Christ, of bringing us in family with Christ till we are lavished by grace. We have redemption by the blood of Christ. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. We are in him for this purpose right here, the very next clause, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is the end of the story, folks. See, the storm sometimes might be tragic, but the end result is that God is working to fix this world. He's not abandoning this world and one day we're going to go to heaven, but it's about heaven coming here. About the joining of the two when God is going to fix both, bring them together as we are in him. And so now we live in that temporary state where our identity is in Christ. We live to reflect Christ. We live to be, as we like to say all the time here at the Bluff, who we were meant to be. Because this is all about getting us back to Genesis 1 and 2, where the perfect state of Adam and Eve and that harmony they had with one another, this is what the gospel is all about, is that Christ came to bring us back to this point. And one day, that's going to be in full consummation, where every knee, whether they want to or not, is going to bow to Christ, where all things are going to be united and summed up in him. It's not, hey, one day, you know, I'm just going to go to heaven. No, it's like I'm now living on purpose to help play my part with my life to help bring heaven closer to here on the earth. That's how we live now. So what about when, what about when the storms of life hit today? Like say a pandemic hits and people start losing their jobs. The economy and the country just start splitting there's all these problems, all these things that are so easy to look at in our world and see, you know, God, yeah, it was, it was great you did all these things long ago. But this, surely this is stopping your plan. What is it that we remember? Well, let's get a little bit more personal here. What about when you act like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you're just, you just made a fool? You just have blundered. You've made some life-altering mistakes. 
You made, you went down some paths. You're like, I'm so ashamed I went down that path. Like, I, I don't even want to be seen by my family and friends because they know of what I've done. And you look at your life and you're like, surely God does not love me anymore. Surely God does not care for me anymore. Surely God has given up on me now because of all the mistakes I made. It's easy to think like that. Sometimes that's the bigger storm. What is it that we remember? See, God hasn't given up on you. You can't out the grace of God. Those moments where you think, God has given up on me. God doesn't love me because I did this thing over here. That doesn't match up with what Jesus says. His love for you is never going to end. He hasn't given up on you. And this life sometimes is going to throw us some storms. And we might have a plan for our life, and that storm might come, and it might change that plan but it's never going to change the plan that God has. And if we're a Christian, if we say, I love God and I'm going to love people because I love Jesus and I have faith in Jesus and I think Jesus is great and he matters more than me, if that's us, then we're still part of that plan. And that plan is going somewhere. And it's going to be a place where where our hope is in the future, where our hope is not in the present. Our hope is in the future that's to come when Christ fixes everything again. That's what we remember. So that even in the storm when it hits and everything's being torn down all around us and people are losing their minds, as we're kind of seeing right now to some degree, as you walk out the door and you're wondering, what chapter of Revelation are we in today, okay? As people are like that today, we can still stand confidently knowing that, you know what, God is still in control and he's still good. And if he could take care of all the blunderings of people long ago to get us to this point, I think he's going to take care of us right now. And maybe in that moment, we'll be able to stop and say what we see in Psalms every time we see one of these disaster articles. And it always ends in some similar way like this. where We read in Psalm chapter 106. It says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Why don't you pray with me? Father, it is good to remember your big story. To look at individuals who were kind of foolish and kind of messed up just like us. And yet you were patient with them. Yet you were there for them. Yet you did not abandon them, but you loved them. You invested in them. And that's encouraging because... Because like I said, sometimes we're the fool. Sometimes we're the one who's blundering things up. But you know what, Father? Your plan is still moving forward, and we can't stop it. Nothing that we can do will stop the fact that you are still working to fix this world in your own way. And while we might be in a storm where we know a storm is coming, Father, we, we rest on this hope that you are still in charge. You still love us. And you're still moving us forward. And one day, we will sing and praise you because we know the ending of our story is not the storm. It is not death. It is the hope that you are king and that you're going to fix things and that we are going to be with you forever rejoicing in who you are.